This is the Drummer's Resource Podcast, session 116. And the quote of the day is from Annie Dillard, who said, How we spend our days is, of course, how we spend our lives. You're listening to the Drummer's Resource Podcast, home of in-depth interviews with the world's greatest drummers and industry professionals. Information, education, and motivation for drumming and beyond. What's going on, everybody? Nick Ruffini here with another session of the Drummer's Resource Podcast. I hope everybody's having a good Monday. This podcast is sponsored by DW Drums, and as you know, I've been playing DW Drums for years, not only because they make great handcrafted drums, but also because they support and foster drumming initiatives all over the world, much like this podcast. So I'm definitely a big fan of the brand. So check them out. Do yourself a favor. Do them a favor. Check them out at dwdrums.com. Another sponsor for this podcast is Drum Magazine. As you know, the podcast is now available at drummagazine.com, and they have some of the best information you will find on the net, like in-depth product reviews and all sorts of educational material, like 43 shuffles that every drummer should know. Check them out, and you can even subscribe right online at drummagazine.com. This session is also made possible by Promark, the makers of the medium broomstick, which are made of actual broom corn. The medium is louder than a brush and capable of heavy bass sound or snappy snare sounds, and it's great to use on instruments like the cajon. You can get more information at your local retailer or at Promark.com. Now, the session that I have today is a Q&A session that Daniel Glass and I did this past Thursday, and there was a lot of great questions in this Q&A. It was a live Q&A where people could chime in, ask their questions, and have Daniel answer them in depth, and it was a really cool thing that we're going to be doing more of, but I wanted everyone to hear this because Daniel gave up a lot of great information, and like I said, there was a lot of great questions as well. So before we get into that, just one quick note. I need you guys to do me a favor and head over to iTunes and just leave a rating or a review for the podcast, an honest rating, an honest review of how you like the podcast. And you can just go to iTunes and rate it. And it's very, very simple. So if you do that, I would really, really appreciate it. And with that, let us get right into this Q&A with Daniel Glass. Here we go. So Roy asks, uh, what is your passion about drumming? Good question. I mean... Uh, I have been obsessed with drumming my whole life um, from the time I was an infant. Um, and that passion has taken different courses through the course of my life. Um, and I think it really, you know, when I was in my 20s and I decided I wanted to make a living as a, as a drummer, um, I, I was passionate about wanting to be a studio guy, you know, wanting to be, I was into learning a lot of styles of music. I wanted to be able to be hired in any number of ways. And, you know, obviously like my idols were Vinnie Caliuta and Dave Weckl. And, you know, a lot of those guys that, that uh, at the time that I was doing that, the early nineties, they were, you know, they were the guys that were, that everybody wanted to be like, that everybody was, you know, that they were the heroes. Um, and once I got into Royal Crown Review, I, you know, um, playing swing music and all that kind of stuff, then my passion became more focused into all of this kind of traditional early drumming. Um, and I, I, uh, I got really, um, I realized what I realized about this stuff, first of all, was that it, we have a lot more in common with it than we think we do. 
And the more that I played it and the more I collected vintage drums and started playing on them and listening to records. And then, of course, I started meeting the drummers that actually played on the records. So that played on the Little Richard records, that played on the Benny Goodman records, that played on the Duke Ellington records. And I started seeking them out. Um, the main reason I did all this was because when I started learning about these classic styles in my work with Royal Crown Review, there were no instructional books that were out there. Um, it was, you know, um, for drummers to play in these styles. There were history books, so I could learn about the music. Um, and, you know, but, but there were no drum instructional books to teach me how to play. So I decided I was going to populate the, the world with the books that I wished that I had had. And so, you know, we collected stuff. I collected vintage drums and we collected vintage clothes and vintage cars and just all this kind of cool vintage, you know, stuff from the sort of the mid-century modern era. We'd go antique mauling. And the more I got that stuff and listened to the music, and then I started meeting the drummers and started doing research about it, then my passion really got focused on, on, the, on the historical stuff. But even that's pretty broad. Like my area of interest, I mean, really, my area of interest is right up to today. I'm listening to music today. I'm listening to, you know, post Beatles music. But the area, the era that I talk about, mainly because nobody else talks about it, is or very few people do in any sort of big way, is is the era before the Beatles. So pre-1965. And my DVD The Century Project kind of bookends a hundred year period. So you know, I started at 1865, which is a, a good date to start because at the end of the Civil War. Um, so that's good for several reasons. And then it ends 100 years later in 1965. And that's what I talk about when I do books and clinics. And I, I like to look at those eras, but I'm interested in, in everything. So ho hopefully that answers your question. You know, Daniel, a lot of the stuff that you do, like you mentioned, is chronicling sort of the stuff that that nobody really talks about. And I always try to stress the importance of learning the lineage and learning where this stuff comes from because not a lot of people go back far before, you know, before the Beatles and all of that stuff. So, and you had mentioned how you wrote these books and these DVDs about things that you wish there were books or about. So just go through your books really quick, just so everybody knows that that stuff is available out there and, and so, and what they're about. Uh, well, I'd say if you're interested in what I'm about, then, the great place to start is the Century Project DVD, which is a nice overview of 100 years of drum evolution and music evolution. And there's demonstrations and performances on vintage gear. And it's like a documentary. It's kind of a lot. It's like a drum clinic and a documentary uh, and a Q&A um, all rolled up into one. And it's and it's that's sort of a good starting place. If uh, in that DVD, I use 11 vintage drum kits. So there's all these beautiful drum kits set up behind me that kind of span that hundred year period that I'm talking about. Um, so I made a, an entire other DVD, a companion DVD to the Century Project, which is called Traps, which really focuses just on the gear. So if you're into vintage drums, I sit down with this guy, John Aldridge, who's one of the world's great experts in vintage drums. I wouldn't call myself uh, an expert. I, I'm a guy who's super into it and passionate about it, but there are guys that are like, whoa, you know. Uh, and he's one of those guys. And and it's that's so we just talk about vintage drums and cymbals and, you know, everything imaginable about the gear. So if you're a gearhead, that's a cool DVD. Um, the books that I have, I did a I did a th those books then go within that hundred year period and they look at certain things in different times. So I focus a lot on early rock. 
Um, I wrote a book with Steve Smith a couple of years ago, which is called The Roots of Rock Drumming, in which we interviewed 23 of the legendary guys that were there at the earliest years of, of rock um, of rock and roll, the dawn of rock. mentioning this stuff, and I'm just like pulling it off of my Oh, screen. he's got the books. Some of them were blues guys. Some of them were jazz guys. Some of them were big band guys. Uh, some of them were country guys. And what's so cool, I'm going to actually, I'll spill the beans a little right now, but I'm going to start doing a podcast. Um, and we're going to put it out via the Drummer's Resource Podcast. I don't want to say too much about it, but I'm going to get, it's going to give me the opportunity to really, really dig into all of this information that I have. Because like a tweet or a Facebook post or a clinic can just only cover so much. And, um, you know, so I'm going to be able to really dig in a lot deeper to it. But the, the, uh, the Roots of Rock Drumming is interviews. And then we found all these amazing pictures. There's also a three-hour DVD on that book that, um, has raw footage from the interviews that we did with with the various guys. So you can actually see them um, on camera and see what their vibe is. Um, uh, I also have a book called uh, The Ultimate History of Rock and Roll Drumming, which is more of a decade-by-decade look at rock. So it starts in 1948, around the beginning of rock and roll, and it, and it goes all the way up to the year 2000, and it breaks it down decade by decade and style by style. So there's like 28 subgenres of rock and roll that I cover, everything from art rock to prog rock to blues rock to, you know, uh, fusion to, you know, just all these different styles, anything related to rock, you know, all the way up to shoegazer, you know, shoegazer rock. Um, and, uh, and then I also have a book uh, um, that I did with Zorro, which is called The Commandments of Early Rhythm and Blues Drumming. And that specifically looks at the 1940s and 50s. And it's sort of a prequel. I don't know how many of you out there are familiar with his book, uh, The Commandments of R&B Drumming, which is a really well-known instructional book, terrific book. And I worked with Zorro and we created a prequel. His book covers 60s, 70s, and 80s R&B drumming. And my book is a prequel, which covers 40s and 50s R&B drumming. And just like Zorro's book, it spells out the whole history. So there's all kinds of charts and graphs and pictures and, and fun. Again, everything I try to do with history is to make it fun, you know, make it accessible and help us here in 2015 to like just really understand why we should know about the history and how cool it is and, and how much it relates to us and what we're doing today, both technically speaking, but also, you know, the styles that we play today, how much they grew out of this stuff and how, by the way, for those that are, you know, trying, it makes you more creative, gives you more options in your toolbox to be more creative in an original band. Say you're in a modern rock original band. If you know about historical styles of drumming, you can dial some of those techniques in and make your sound different than every other band that's doing what you do. Um, if you want to be a working drummer, um, understanding about traditional styles is, you know, those are still all around us. I noticed another of my students, Lachlan, is online now. And Lachlan and I have been working um, not only on getting his jazz playing together specifically, because that's what he wanted to work on, but also like, you know, how much if, you know, he's working as a freelance musician and you know he's a younger guy in his 20s wanting to get his career going but um to 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 understand these classic styles and the nuances of them will make you more employable because so much of the of the work out there if you think about bands that play weddings bands that play um you know blues clubs bands that play corporate events bands that play classic rock shows you know all of that stuff relates to what i'm talking about so the commandments book i did with zoro's 40s and 50s and the instructional part of that book is shuffles and it's like the ultimate 
ultimate book about shuffles because in the 40s and 50s, shuffles were at the heart of all of American popular music and, and they came out of rhythm and blues. So if any of you have ever seen my Modern Drummer um, Festival appearance, I, talk, I do a clinic on shuffles and I talk about how like reggae comes from American shuffles, how um, hard rock comes from American shuffles, straight eighth rock comes from American shuffles, how ska and rock steady music, um, you know, also uh, Jamaican, how gospel drumming comes from shuffles. Like all these things that are today very major styles in the world. Of course, blues drumming comes from shuffles, mm -hmm. but shuffles are like, they go beyond the blues. They've influenced, you know, hip hop, funk, all and probably they're probably one of the least known grooves how to play. Right. You know, people know like a rock shuffle. So they know that. Maybe they know the purdy halftime shuffle. Other than that, maybe not. Maybe one Stevie Ray Vaughan is shuffle, right. which I always, which is always like demonstrated really badly because most people play shuffles. You know, they're like, <laughs> it's like, ah, I'm falling off a cliff, you know, like. There's always this terror in people's the eyes when, when I ask them to play a shuffle. So it's a whole, yeah, <laughs> totally, totally. It's a whole, it's a whole thing, man. And when I teach, I get into the history. I don't just teach, you know, here's what your right arms and legs do. I show the why, what I like to call the why behind the what, which, yeah. I, you know, makes sick of me hearing, hearing me talk about that. But it's like, if we know why something is supposed to sound a certain way based on how it's evolved through history, then that can really inform how we play that that style. Right. So Dave asks, uh, Daniel, with everything that or with everything that you have written about famous drummers for the past hundred years, I'm surprised you haven't written anything about Roy Knapp and his influence on his students like Hal Blaine, Buddy Harmon, uh, Odie Payne, Fred Below, et cetera, and their influence on the music they played. Well, actually, I definitely have written about Roy Knapp um, uh, in the Roots of Rock Drumming book, Buddy Harmon talks about Roy Knapp, um, uh, Louis Belson, uh, uh, he's not in the Roots of Rock Drumming book, but I, I wrote an, uh, a feature about Stick It magazine, and, and, and Louis talks about Roy Knapp. Um, you know, maybe I am guilty of not including as much. I'm certainly extremely familiar with Roy Knapp. Uh, he was a legendary teacher. In fact, I'm going to get some pictures of Roy Knapp right now. Give me one sec. Nice. I got it right here. Roy Knapp was this really interesting looking dude. He was a huge, enormous man. And uh, he had this crazy drum set. Here is Roy Knapp. And um, a guy that I met at the Chicago Drum Show, Roy Knapp actually signed this picture to him. This drum set is in the um, Percussive Arts Society uh, Museum in Indianapolis. Um, oh, by the way, I have, there's a whole exhibit. What's that? What's it, the Rhythm Rhythm Center? It's called the Rhythm Discovery Center. Yeah. And I designed an exhibit on the history of the drum set along with, with those guys and, and a bunch of other folks. But if they have an amazing exhibit on the history of the drum set there right now. But this drum set of Roy Knapp's is in there. And Roy Knapp, thank you very much, Dave. You're absolutely right. He had a lot of really famous students. Fred Bilo, the amazing Chicago blues drummer. Uh, Louis Velsa studied with him. Gene Krupa studied with him a little bit. Um, Buddy Harmon, Hal Blaine. Uh, a guy, um, uh, uh, I forget his name. I mean, tons of guys studied at that school. Um, and, and he was in Chicago and his, uh, there was what's called Frank's Drum Shop. His school was right above Frank's Drum Shop. Frank's is kind of a legendary drum shop, kind of like um, Victor Salazar 
Vic Sternstrap is trying to be like the new Franks for right. this era. Uh, same kind of vibe. So you could see this is a crazy ass kit. Roy Knapp was a theater drummer. That's how he, uh, as a young man, made his name before he became known more as a teacher. So all those traps and crazy devices on there from many different eras. Um, it's a really like a motley kit, you know, just thrown together. Um, but, you know, if you think of like a lot of drum sets today, you know, with, that have like 10 toms and 40 cymbals and percussion on them, you know, this was the version of those. So this was probably taken, um, I would say, the 50s or 60s. And I actually have a, a different 8x10 of this kit. Um, but it's, it's, just, it's just really cool. So you want to see this kit? Literally looks just like this, along with probably 15 other drum sets, including uh, in Indianapolis, we have a, uh, um, there's a, 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 an authentic John Bonham kit, the green Ludwig that he used, the green sparkle Ludwig. Um, and there's, um, uh, we have a Ringo, not an actual Ringo kit, but we have an exact replica of a Ringo kit um, that um, Andy Mayer, who's a collector down in Dallas, provided. Um, two of my, three of the drum sets from, from the Century Project, my, my collection, and one from a buddy of mine in California are there. And then a bunch of stuff, other stuff that's really cool. Oh, and there's a killer Neil Peart kit in there right now from... Um, like the fly-by-night era of Rush. So it's the kit um, that's like chrome, all chromed, mm -hmm. you know, that, that particular one. And you can actually go sit behind it um, when, the, when the dudes are there. You can get your picture taken with it, you know, like right. the whole nine hours. Yeah, yeah. Nice. But anyway, so it's, it's an amazing exhibit. And Ndugu Chancellor's kit is there that he played on Thriller, the Michael Jackson album Thriller. Nice. Um, Glenn, Glenn Kochi, who plays with Wilco, um, his kit is in there. It's kind of cool because when you see Glenn Kochi's kit, it's like a modern version of this because Glenn uses drums and percussion in a hybrid manner, which right. is kind of more and more what drummers are doing. A lot of drummers are doing nowadays. And that's how drummers used to use the drum set back in the day. Hmm. So anyway, so terrific question. And I hope that uh, we definitely need to give Roy Knapp his due. Maybe a podcast on Roy Knapp. Mm -hmm. Uh, so Mike asks, you, uh, were you much of a history buff before your RCR days, or do you feel like the music drew you into that era? The music drew me in, man. I, I mean, I wasn't, um, I remember you, you told me a story about how you were, and correct me if I'm wrong, but you were sort of like the, a rock guy. And then you were thinking swing and you were like, I want to be more rebellious. And I want to, I want to sort of, um, you know, I, I want I want more edge to it, and then you realize that that the stuff did have a lot of edge to it, right? Yes, absolutely. Um, it's, See, I listen, it's interesting I listen because sometimes when you talk, <laughs> yeah. Well, I yeah, I, I'm glad you picked up that much because mostly when I start talking, like eyes glaze over, and people are just you know, people are like, oh no, there he goes again. Um, what? I, the reason I like to tell my story a lot is because I wasn't some guy who was raised listening to this music. I grew up in Honolulu, Hawaii. We didn't have any of this kind of music in Hawaii. Um, well, not entirely true, but I mean, I didn't listen to big band music. I didn't listen to, you know, I grew up listening to Ian Pace, Deep Purple, Black Sabbath. Um, I was into heavy rock, Jimi Hendrix. Um, that's what I played in all of my first bands. And I had no thought about any of this historical stuff. And 
it wasn't until I got into Royal Crown Review that I really like, I was just blown away at how much the band rocked. I mean, if you guys get a chance, like go on YouTube and just check out some Royal Crown Review live videos of performance. And you'll see like, we rock, rocked. Like we were all, you know, other guys in the band, all of us had grown up listening to rock music. So we were, um, we were really, um, we were really coming from that perspective, you know, at the same time, um, the music was so unusual. Like it was different. Like I always like to say it, it swung, but it wasn't swing. Um, it had a bluesy chord progression, but it wasn't the blues, you know, that we think of when we think of Chicago blues or Stevie Ray Vaughan. And it, you know, it, it, it was called, you know, even early rock and roll is called rock and roll, but it doesn't really sound like, and I'm definitely doing a podcast on this. It doesn't sound like what we think of when we think of rock and roll today, you know? So I was intrigued and I was excited because as a guy grew up playing rock, I played very aggressively. And I realized that the way Royal Crown Review played traditional classic music, they felt the same way. So it was kind of a match made in heaven. And that's why I was like, as soon as I played with them the first time, I was like, okay, we're meant to be together, you know? Um, but I had a lot of learning to do because I didn't even understand. I didn't know most of the artists. I learned the songs, of course, the repertoire, and there was a lot of original material that we were working on, but then they would be like, well, for this song, you know, once you do like a Lewis Jordan thing here and then on the chorus, go to like a prima shuffle. And I'm just like, what are you talking about? You know, I had no idea right. what this was. So they started schooling me and it was tough. Like, cause I thought I was, you know, I thought I knew my stuff. I thought mm -hmm. I was I was a pretty badass jazz drummer, but I'd be playing Tony Williams or Elvin Jones E stuff or very heavy big band things and they would look at me and go, "No, man, that's not it." You know. So that that pushed me in this direction. And I think the thing that really sold me was when I started meeting and seeking out the drummers that had played on the records that we were, you know, covering or that we were using as our inspiration. Right. Um you know, one of the first guys I met was a guy named Johnny Kirkwood, who was an African-American jazz drummer around L.A. He was a working guy, you know, so like he played a lot like like say when Jimmy Smith, the organ jazz organ player, would come and do a week at Catalina Bar and Grill in L.A., um, he would hire Johnny because a lot of times they would just hire local guys for some of these things. And he was like no one had, no one had any idea who he was. I mean, he just he was a guy, working guy, get hired, do gigs. Um well, I found out that he was, he had played with Louis Jordan for five years from 1950 to 1955. And Louis Jordan, most people don't know who he is. If you've read any of my books or seen my DVDs, I talk about him a lot. Mm -hmm. He was like the Jay-Z, I like to say, of the 1940s. He was the most popular African-American artist in America and popular outside of America as well. But today he's not very well known, but he was extremely influential. He influenced everybody like all 23 drummers we interviewed in our um in our in our roots of rock drumming book the mm -hmm. only common thing among them is that they were all influenced by lewis jordan like right. all of them you know the shuffle they're all like yeah man when i was starting out that lewis jordan shuffle like that was really the beginning of rock and roll lewis jordan had been in chick webb's band chick webb the famous drummer band leader um he'd been an alto player in his band and when the swing era kind of ended in the early 40s he went his own way and he took the idea of a big band, which was a danceable swinging kind of organization and made it smaller, but he still made the music swing. So while other guys went off in a more bebop artistic direction, Lewis Jordan kept it 
in that danceable entertainment swing blues kind of based thing. Anyway, Johnny Kirkwood had played with this guy for five years and I sought him out and he and I ended up becoming really, really good friends. And Buddy Harmon, the legendary Nashville drummer, he and I became really good friends. I hung out with both these guys. They took me places, introduced me to people. I stayed at Buddy's house. I ended up when Buddy was was very old and in poor health. I went. I would happen to be in Nashville where he where he lives, of course, lived. And I set up my video camera and I had him tell me his whole life story. And then I turned that into a DVD, put chapters on it and everything. And I gave it to his family. You know, so it was like it became personal for me. Sure. And I think at that point, when I was hanging with these dudes and like realizing like this isn't just music; these were people and beautiful people and the drumming journey they were on was just like mine and the stuff they had done, you know, like another great story, J.M. Van Eden, who I'm actually going to try to interview for the podcast. Um, he was the drummer on like two thirds of everything done at Sun Studios in uh, Memphis. And, and, you know, I got to go hang out with J.M. This European dude, the Europeans are like really into the, you know, they like to re reproduce this stuff exactly perfectly note for note. So this, this piano player is like a Jerry Lee Lewis fanatic comes to Sun Studios and I got to sit in the original Sun Studios watching J.M. Van Eaton, the original drummer on whole lot of shaking going on, cut whole lot of shaking going on with this piano guy who's exactly like jerry lee lewis now if that's not a chicken skin moment and a bucket list <laughs> moment i mean for me yeah you know so with all those kind of experiences like that's when i became like a these dudes have amazing stories to tell they made amazing music the music is you know you think of, i'm going to do a podcast also on rock around the clock i'm like giving it all away here but the song rock around the clock we're like yeah happy days whatever bill haley blah 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 you know right. it just seems like kind of hokey pokey when you really dig into that song, it's unbelievable what was going on. And I'm going to break it all down and show all the influences and show kind of how that came to be known as sort of like the first most important rock and roll song. Mm. And again, it's a song that doesn't sound like Smoke on the Water, you know, or anything we think of when sure. we think of rock or even the Beatles. It doesn't sound anything like the Beatles, really. It mm. sounds, you know, like what came before it, but it was the way it was all put together. So again, I met the drummer, Dick Richards, who was the Comets drummer. I saw the original Comets play um, there, you know, about 10 years ago in um, at the opening of the Rockabilly Hall of Fame. Um, they they had a guy. It was all guys who had been in the Comets in the 50s. And they had this guy named jo- Jocko or Jacko from England, who um, I swear to God, you close your eyes. You think you're listening to Bill Haley. Really? So he you know, it's like you were watching the frickin Bill Haley in the Comets. Now, maybe to some people out there, it's like so. But to me, once I got into all this, this was like life changing. And that's what I'm trying to that's what I'm trying to do with what I do as an educator and an author in particular. I mean, what I do as a musician, I play a lot of different kinds of music, but I'm just like trying to share this insane passion I have because it's just so cool. It's so cool. Like I just want everybody to know about it, you know? You have a ridiculous amount of information too, man. You're like a walking encyclopedia. You know, some of the conversations that we've had have just completely blown my mind. And you're like, oh yeah, that was that. And then this did this, and then this, and this is why this happened, and this is why this happened. And then it, you know, then things come into focus a lot more. So then when you hear something, and then I always finish by going, "Isn't that cool?" <laughs> <laughs> and I said, "I don't know, man." I glazed over, and uh, yeah, no, I mean, right. I mean, you've. You've taught me so much over the years, just just 
history of things and where they came from and why things are the way that they are rather than just accepting them to say, well, that's just the way they are. You know, you say, no, this is why. And then once you start to understand why, then you start to hear the differences. And like I said, it sort of brings everything into focus and you can understand the music a lot more. So, uh, so well, the next question, thanks. speaking of where things originated, uh, Mark asked, who do you think originated the double shuffle? So let's talk about what a double shuffle is and then and then talk about who. Okay, well, let's talk about de de defining shuffles because there's there's an idea that when you when you have, you know, people hear about like a Chicago shuffle or a Texas shuffle or, or a man. double shuffle. What's that? The old man shuffle, the flat tire shuffle. The old shuffle. man shuffle, the flat tire shuffle. Yeah. Well, flat tire shuffle you can pretty much define. The pre certain shuffles you can define. Right. But, you know, when I did my book with Zorro, The Commandments of Early Rhythm and Blues Drumming, um, what I quickly realized is that, you know, a double shuffle is like both hands, you know, playing the shuffle groove at the same time. Ja, 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 ja. I don't know if you can sort of see that, but, right. you know, both hands shuffling, essentially. Um, and when you listen to Chicago blues, you hear guys playing a double shuffle. When you got, you know, listen to Texas blues, you hear guys playing a double shuffle. When you listen to New Orleans blues, you know, so the double shuffle, some people would say, well, that's a Chicago shuffle or that's a Texas shuffle, you know, and what one guy called in Chicago, a, a, a Chicago shuffle, another guy in Texas might say, no, that's the Texas shuffle. So rather than defining my shuffles that way, the way I tried to think about a region of the country was to, um, listen to a lot of music that was made in that area, in that region, because in the 1940s and 50s, when when the shuffle and blues and R&B and rock were all coming to fore and bubbling up, um, you had, you know, these little regions at the time was like rock in the, you know, in the 1970s or hip hop in the 70s. It was totally underground. It was not mainstream. You know, it was considered to be, you know, black music, which in with a very negative connotation, it was it was not something that respectable, you know, white mainstream America listened to. Right. So what's what what's great about that is that nobody was paying attention to like, um, you know, Sun Records, um, where Sam Phillips had this wacky gear and he was able to make this slapback reverb happen mm -hmm. that. When like Elvis and Johnny Cash take off, everyone's trying to mimic that, but they couldn't because he had this crappy gear in this crappy studio and had this like way of doing it. But so you get from all these little studios, these little independent labels is really the beginning of, of what we think of as independent labels, you know, just producing their own records, putting them in the trunk of the car, going out and selling them in stores, aiming to play it. It was very, very regional. So when you think of Texas, in the 1940s and 50s, you can actually listen to stuff that was very particular to Texas. So when I listen to that, that's how I make my determination of how I would characterize Texas blues, and I would right. call it Texas blues. So I would use some examples of shuffles that are common in Texas blues. For example, when I do clinics about shuffles, uh, there's a shuffle. Um, do you check down? So you're emphasizing the third say, partial of the triplet. Say that two again. Triplet, two triplet, three. You cut out there for a second. What's that? You cut out there for a oh, second. Oh, I'm sorry. That's okay. So, so talking about like Texas shuffle, that you know, guitar players, T-Bone Walker, doom, chick doom, chick doom, you know, they, they would hit the third partial of the trumpet. Instead of it being chung, da chung, da chung, they'd play the backside, doom, chick doom, chick doom. So drummers would imitate that. And you hear a lot of that. And you could hear that 
in everything from T-Bone Walker in the 1940s to, you know, Albert Collins in the 1960s to Stevie Ray Vaughan and ZZ Top in the 70s and 80s. You know, and so all those people are from Texas. So now I can say, okay, uh, I can make some generalizations about that, you know, but I, I, I do break it all down. I talk about a lot of different shuffles. There's a shuffles index in the book. And um, anyway, that's what I can say about shuffles. Nice. So this is an interesting question. And by the way, um, Dave Randall wrote in and he said a really nice comment uh, about the exhibit. He said, great exhibit. I work in Indy every month or so and check out the museum every time they change things up. Thanks. Oh, nice. So. So thanks, Dave, for checking it out. And again, if you get anywhere near Indianapolis, I think it's now they've extended it. It's going to run through the end of 2016. Oh, nice. So if you're there for PASIC, which I, if anybody's not planning on going to PASIC, I strongly recommend going to PASIC and checking. Yeah, it'll probably be up through, because in in this year, 2015, PASIC is in San Antonio. But next year, it's going to be back in Indy. And it'll be there through the end of PASIC of next year. And I um, shouldn't spill the beans, but right now I'm trying working on maybe taking it to a much, much bigger museum. Awesome. Yeah. So we'll see what happens with that. I like it. Keep tight lipped. I won't say anything more, but you know, to really expand it and make right. it something insane. Not that it's good it's good now, but right. it's a small museum. Yeah, yeah. All right. So let's say you or uh, Brian asked, let's say you come up upon Max Roach, Elvin Jones, and Art Blakey. You can sit down and learn from one of the veterans. Which one would you choose? And uh, why? Uh, those, those kind of questions are impossible. I mean, <laughs> you know, I, I can tell you, I, I don't even, I think if being the, the, his, the history-oriented guy that I am, I think what I would ask them is who they were influenced by. Because they each of them has a, has a really, you know, incredible career, massive amount of stuff recorded over many, many decades. Mm-hmm. There's been a lot of transcription and discussion. But to me, what always makes it so interesting for me to understand a player more when I'm trying to say I'm playing an Art Blakey song, if I know what influenced Art Blakey and I go back and listen to that, it gives me a deeper awareness of Art Blakey. Um, sure. And the best example of this is, is John Bonham. And I talk about John Bonham a lot because everybody knows John Bonham. John Bonham is a good reference for everyone. Um, and, you know, John Bonham, it's like the first thing, I won't get too into Bonham, but the, the first thing is that, you know, everybody wants to get the Bonham sound, right? They all want to sound like John Bonham. So they go in the studio and they want this mic or, you know, these, this kind of drum or whatever. Just for starters, most people who want to sound like Bonham don't bother to go look at any pictures of John Bonham's drums. That might be a good place to start. <laughs> and when you do that, what you realize is that A, there's his bass drum is a 26, and it's not a 20, it's 26 in diameter, and it's not 18 inches deep, it's 14 inches deep. Because when you have such a big drum, if you want to get it to be clear because it's so big and not just sound like a booming mess, then the bigger the diameter, the shallower the depth right. is generally the rule. Now, you don't have to go that way, and I'm sure other people have done other things, but that's generally how bass drums traditionally are designed. Stanton Moore and, uses a 26 as like an auxiliary kick that he has set up yeah. next to his kit with his. Drum. And the second thing you'll notice is in that 26, there's no hole cut, there's no venting in the front head, and there's no muffling in the drum. 
None. Zero. And that's partly why Bonham gets this incredible sound. Uh, thirdly, if you look and learn about John Bonham a little, you realize that he was influenced by Gene Krupa, was his, was his idol. There's a famous quote that he said that in one of the John Bonham books, he, when Zeppelin first got to play at Carnegie Hall, um, he was super stoked because this was the stage where the very famous Benny Goodman and Carnegie Hall record was recorded, uh, which was a very important record when he was growing up. So Gene Krupa was everywhere when John Bonham was growing up. You know, and we don't think about that. But if you want to sound like Bonham, not only sound like him, but think about where he was coming from as a player, you got to think about that stuff. Right. Um, so, you know, once you know all that, then you, you know, and by the way, when I just did this, I just did the Chicago drum show in May and I did, I, I'm this, I'm, this year I've created a new clinic because it's the 80th anniversary of the dawn of the swing era, which dates to 1935 is when people say, okay, the big band swing era started in 1935. And they even date it to a certain show that the Benny Goodman orchestra did. Of course, Gene Krupa was the drummer. So um, in a tribute to that, I took the original studio recording of Sing Sing Sing, which is actually two parts on a 78, and they're kind of wedded together, but there's a part one and part two. Mm. And it's like a nine-minute song. And DW was kind enough to build me a 26 by 14. You know, they built me a Krupa kind of replica-ish kit using the classic shells, cool vintage, uh, vintage pearl finish, and... 26 inch bass drum. Now, when you hit a 26 inch bass drum with, I use the Aquarian modern vintage heads, which are kind of like faux calf skin, because that's what Gene Krupa used. When you play a drum like that and it has nothing in it and it's not vented, and you feel like somebody wrote an email to me after and they said, Man, I was like in the 20th row and I could feel that bass drum. I could nice. feel the wind almost from that base. I could feel the pulse, you know, when, right. when you hit that, it is something unlike anything you've ever experienced in your life. Because in the world we live in today, that's just not really an option for most people. Right. It's like 22, 24, mm -hmm. fill it up with a bunch of junk, vent it. It's like you're hitting a box mostly. Right. Sometimes you get a little of the tone. But when you, when you hit a drum like that, not only do you understand so much more about swing music of the 1930s and how with no amplification on the guitars, no um, amplification on the horns, they were able to get a room full of 6,000 people dancing their asses off and, and yet not blow away those horns that are sitting right next to them. So it wasn't about volume. It was about stuff like a 26-inch bass drum right. to right, set up right, that travels. And when you put that with an upright bass, where the amp is the big body of the bass and a hollow body guitar, mm -hmm. now every quarter note that goes out is like a is like a breath, is right. like a whoom, you know? And that's and when you play them all together in the right way, and believe me, when I teach people, I talk all about quarter notes, quarter note pulse, because if you listen to bottom, you can hear quarter note pulse. Listen to Steve Smith, you can hear quarter note pulse. Yep. That all goes back to that time, Count Basie band, you know, and I'm getting probably way off topic. But um, anyway, so, you know, that's just an example of if you know more about your heroes, then you can play better, more like them, understand them more deeply. And that's that's why I would ask Max Roach um, and uh, Elvin and uh, uh, Art Blakey, I would talk to them about who influenced them. And that was something that was taught to me a long time ago that 
whoever you like, go listen to who they listen to and then figure out who they listen to. And you'll really understand where you're, where Chad Smith is coming from or where Bonham is coming from or whoever, whoever your drummer is, you know, like if you take a guy like that and they didn't just create this sound, they got, it's a, a combination of all these other players that they've listened to for years. And, and that's why they swung so much too, when they played rock and roll, because you know, you listen to any Zeppelin tune, he can be, he can pl- be playing whatever he wants as straight as he, you know, as straight as anything, but it swings its ass off because that's what he was influenced and, by. And, and you have to understand that when John Bonham was growing up and all the guys of that era of the British invasion in the late sixties that we all love so much, you know, there was no such thing as a rock and roll teacher. Right. There was no such thing as a rock as rock and roll the way we know it today. They so what there was was jazz and jazz teachers and that's what they were learning. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I just to finish the story of influences because I like to tell this story. Ian Pace was like one of my probably my first major drum hero. I was nine years old. My best friend at the time was twelve, and he turned me on to um, to Deep Purple and just like my parents had been listening to like John Denver and, you know, stuff like that before. And here I like, what is, I'm like, what's our made in Japan? And my life has instantly (laughs) changed. Right. So anyway, I, I, um, Ian Pace became a favorite. And then when I found out that he was left-handed set up left-handed, then I really got excited about him. And that's why I was, I felt like, Oh, well I can turn the drums down and play left-handed because he does it. So it must be acceptable. Um, and nobody ever told me different. So I just did it. Um, but what's funny is when I finally, met Ian Pace. Ian Pace, his father led a jazz big band and he grew up playing jazz in his dad's big band. And then he became a rock drummer. I listened to Ian Pace and I started out as a rock drummer. And then through approaching jazz in more of a rock and roll kind of way, worked my way back to those styles. So you get this like trippy full circle thing where the jazz guy becomes a rocker who then influences other rockers who then become jazzers. You know, right. so was, you know it was a little circle, man. Yeah. It's man. amazing. Once you start, once you, <laughs> once you start digging into that stuff and, and going down that road, it opens up all these doors that you never knew were there. So it's Absolutely. amazing. And that's why it's just so fascinating to me, you know, mm-hmm. so fascinating. Me too. Uh, so what's the next question? So Roy asks, what kind of snare drums do you like, or what, what, what kind of snare drum do you like the most and why? Again, the most is a tough one. I always like to say, you know, like on Mondays, I eat Chinese food. Tuesdays, I eat Italian. Wednesdays, you know, I have a burrito. Like, I like variety. Um, that said, some generalizations. I like um, without going into brands, I'm a DW endorser. I love their drums, of course. Uh, I have a lot of vintage drums. Uh, I love those, of course. Um, the type of drumming that I've done over the years that I'm sort of known for, which is, you know, Royal Crown of You, Brian Setzer, kind of like hard hitting, you know, what we sort of call retro swing or retro rockabilly. Um, I like deep drums, like six and a halfs. I use those a lot. Um, traditionally I've used wood drums. Um, I like, like solid ply drums. So, um, I, I had a, a D when Johnny Craviato, you guys probably all know Craviato drums now they're, they're, um, they're really moving up in the world of custom companies. Uh, they're made by a guy named Johnny Craviato and he's, this is his company, but for years going back to the 1980s, he, he used to have another company called one ply or solid, something like that. But he specializes in making shells out of one piece of wood, not plies. 
but just one piece of wood. And for a time in the 90s, he, he actually, his business went under for whatever reason. And so he made special Craviato snare drums for DW. And I got a, one of his drums in the mid nineties. And I just, I, it's like been almost like my go-to drum, especially for live stuff, just forever. Um, six and a half, one ply maple. And what, what I like about the deeper drums is that um, with bands like Brian Setzer and Royal Crown Review, I had to walk a fine line. In other words, I had to be able to play a backbeat on two and four and really get the drum to like sing, you know, get some tone out of it and not feel like I was just hitting a, a you know, a, a choked up, you know, like not to slag on Orange County drum percussion, but those were also popular in the mid nineties. That's when they first came out right. and they were doing all this crazy stuff like punching holes in the shells and putting stars and moons and crazy shapes. And, you know, they, their, their drums are great and guys that use them, but there were a lot of guys on the, we did the warp tour, believe it or not, with Royal crown with, with like uh, bands like blink 182, um, three eleven, um, uh, you know, a, a ton of bands. Mm. And a lot of these guys that were in these bands that were especially were playing like the retro ska kind of stuff, because there's retro ska, retro swing, they would they would get these Orange County drum percussion drums and just crank them up. And it just sounded like, you know, and, and that was when piccolo drums were popular. And for me, that just never did it for what I wanted to do. Right. So to kind of get the heavy backbeat sound, I needed a deep drum. And I liked the solid, you know, the solid wood drum. Mm. Uh, but then to get uh, the, I had to play a lot of kind of very rudimentally oriented choppy stuff too, because that was required in the band. And we would do some bebop stuff and a lot of big band hits. And I liked that. So with a big deeper drum, I could crank it up a bit and then really lay into it. Um, and do you have any special tuning techniques as a part of the second part of that question too? Tuning techniques, um, for snare drums, you know, it's, it's, I just actually, I'm in the newest issue of drum magazine that's out right now. There's special snare drum issue, um, talking about, um, let's see if it's here somewhere. I don't know. It's around here somewhere, but, um, there it's the whole issue is about snare drums. And I did a round table in Chicago with, um, a, a few other guys, um, uh, and we're, we're talking about all this stuff related to snare drums. Snare drums are, are tough, man. It's, it's, you know, I like to tune them pretty open. I don't muffle them very much. I'm a drum tax endorser. So sometimes I'll put a drum tack on, um, actually that's not the snare drum issue, but it's a, it's a good issue. No. Yeah. Um, I thought it was. It, it doesn't matter. I mean, if people want to go out, it's, it's, I think it's either the current issue. I think it is the current issue right now. Okay. Anyway, it has a big snare drum on the front cover. Surprisingly. Um, Maybe I should have grabbed the one that said snare drum edition. There you go. The one that's sitting um, right next to me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think it has a big snare drum on the cover. I, I was I, like, I think, look, it says at the top too, special snare drum issue. <laughs> I'm like, nope, that's not it. Let me grab no, the. No, let me get the one with the dude with the long hair <laughs> rocking out. You know. Um, Sorry to interrupt. Anyway, I I uh, I um. It, it's, uh, so just, oh, so, uh, so I use drum tacks if I need to do any muffling, but I like open sounding drums. I like, you know, if you listen to the classic guys like Buddy Rich, Gene Krupa, the way that those guys played, they hit, they hit hard, but they did a lot of fancy stuff and the drums rang out. Wang. Yeah. Show the picture actually move, scooch it a little over. It's a really cool picture 
they took from above looking down on us having breakfast very early in the morning at sort of this big open area at the show. It's a cool, I just really like that picture a lot. Yeah. Where was that? Chicago drum show? Chicago drum show. Yeah. Yeah. Um, So that's sort of the main like area. And there's like a a cafe there. So the tables are like, people want to hang out and, you know, have have a drink and stuff. So we, that was early. It was like eight o'clock in the morning when everybody had been doing the show and then up late, you know, um, but anyway, uh, yeah, I, I like uh, I like open sounding drums. I like open tunings. Now, they're not going to work for everything, of course, right. but for what I do, that's cool. Now, recently in New York City, uh, I've been living in New York City for five years, and I play um, in New York. I don't do so much kind of heavy big bandy stuff. I play a lot more really quiet gigs. I, back, I work with a lot of singers uh, in small combos or I'm doing small jazz gigs. And what I like on those, for those, I have a DW... Uh, jazz series um, I think again it's a one ply I'm not sure but it's definitely maple shell um, and the jazz series um, I, I like to crank that pretty high and and really have like no ring on it at all because when you're doing jazz stuff you want to really be able to like almost like an orchestral snare but again I like the six and a half and what my next acquisition I'm definitely getting is a probably a DW chrome their version of the black beauty which is a chrome over brass um, and um, a lot of jazz guys use metal, deep metal drums, uh, because they just afford you a crispiness, and you can really pull out so much playing very lightly and very um, kind of delicately. Mm-hmm. And and the, the metal drums are, are good for that. Nice. So yeah. uh, Todd says, "Hey Daniel, it's Todd. Thanks for spending." Spending time with me at the Stickman Drum Camp a few weeks ago. I'm still working on some of the tips you share with me. I love listening to your stories. I just wanted to say hi. Take care. Awesome. How's it going, Todd? Yeah. Um, I was just up in outside of uh, Saskatoon. Saskatoon. Uh, uh, Saskatoon. Saskatoon, Saskatchewan in Canada a couple weeks ago around the July 4th weekend doing this amazing camp they have up there every year called the Stickman Drum Experience. Really amazing collection of teachers. Um, Mike Johnston was on it. Uh, this guy Gorgo Berlai, who's from Hungary, who's like beyond He's monstrous, insane fusion chop craziness. Uh, Chris Johnson, who's a you know R and B kind of gospel guy, who played with Rihanna for six years, um, played with Stevie Wonder. Also got all this, you know, grew up in church, got the gospel thing down. Um, uh, who else was on that? They did a they did a uh, this was pretty cool. They skyped in Kenny Aronoff, who did like a one hour intensive uh, via Skype. Nice. Um, being on the road with uh, Fogarty, John Fogarty. Um, <clears throat> so it was a great, it was a great camp and uh, I had a blast and I, I enjoy Canada a lot. You know, it's just uh, everybody up there is really cool. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, it's, uh, it's like America without all the problems kind of yeah, in a way. Like America you know? light. It's People like- are friendly and polite and stuff's a little more laid back and not yeah. as crazy as, as as crazy as everything tends to get sometimes in this country you know where we're always like ah, must must push harder must achieve must <laughs> become a millionaire tomorrow you know you know etc cetera, etc cetera. oh so all right i'll just give that million dollars to somebody i was going to give it to you but i guess you don't want to oh i'll give i'll give it to somebody else all right give uh, it to a canadian yeah so uh so ruben asks how do you practice soloing in jazz Really good question. I mean, I think this this could definitely be a major um, this could be a major podcast topic right here, 
I should do. Are you making notes of this? I should be writing all these, these topics down. Well, I didn't write this one down, but I will. <clears throat> so I, I'm going to actually do a whole thing about jazz. And Nick actually did a really nice thing about jazz in one of his podcasts uh, recently. What is it? One number one ten. Uh, I think it was where you, talking, where you played Freddie Freeloader, right? Yeah, was that one ten or it's recent? It's it's the latest Ask Rafini podcast. So just go to drummersresource.com. I think it's like one. I just yeah, released 115 or yeah, it's, it's in, in that like 110 to 115. But yeah, I go through um, a bunch of tunes or a couple tunes just explaining form and the basics of form and how to count it. Um, but but you would definitely be the man to answer the question about the soul. Well, so to, to give a, a simpler explanation, well, not simpler, but to to add to that, in addition to form which is important in jazz. It's important in every style. I mean, we have form in rock, verse, chorus, verse, chorus, bridge, solo, verse, chorus, 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 you know, typical rock song. They have a lot of different forms in jazz. But the thing that drummers always forget about is melody, melody. And the problem with drummers is that, you know, when when you think of, like there's a classic, classic uh, meme that was running around Facebook you know, and whoever's been in a marching band knows this exactly. So um, it, it's called the Star Spangled Banner from a Drummer's Perspective. And it goes like this. Oh, say. Oh, no, yeah. So, oh, say. Uh, sorry. Oh, say. Can you boom crash by the dawn's <laughs> early boom crash? You know, and, and, and the roll, you know. So. Like, that's how we think about music. We don't know melodies. We don't know lyrics. We don't even know the titles of the songs half the time. We're just like, the questions we always ask are, how fast, what tempo, right, and what style? Mm -hmm. And then we're like, off to the races. And the problem with that, when you get to jazz in particular, is that when it comes time, like, jazz is a conversation. So, for example, if if you um, are in a room with four other people who are quantum mechanics freaks, and you don't know anything about quantum mechanics, and they're having this intense conversation, well, you're not going to be part of that conversation. You're not going to be able to contribute much, if anything, to that conversation. And that's what happens to drummers, is that everyone else is having a conversation about a particular song. So say we'll take the song Take the A-Train, which is one of the songs that I think that Nick Mm -hmm. plays, demonstrates. And so you should go back and listen to to his podcast after this and show how he he uses the, the material. But... You know, each song has a title and a melody, and often they have lyrics. So Take the A-Train has all three. Now, originally it was made as, a, as an instrumental tune, and like a lot, like a lot of jazz, here's our, our buddy. He wants My, to be part of this. This is part of it. Omar. <laughs> um, but, but, you know, so everyone else is talking about this song, Take the A-Train, and they know the melody, they know the words. I mean, by the way, how many of you out there listening right now even know what the title means? The A train is a subway line here in New York, and that subway goes up into Harlem, 125th Street. So the whole idea of the song is like, hey, everybody, jump on the A train, come on up to Harlem, because all this cool jazz is going on in Harlem. It was written in 1941, you know, when Harlem was like still very happening scene. It was the center of jazz in New York, and everybody would go up there to hear jazz. You know, it wasn't just, I mean, it's an African-American neighborhood, but like that's where you would go. That was the place. So you would take the A train to get up to Harlem. The Apollo Theater is right there, you know, block away from the station, et cetera, et cetera. So that's, again, the why behind the what is that if you know the melody, if you know the song, now when it comes time for you to solo, 
There's no mystery to the solo. Drummers are always like, what do I play? How do I trade fours in jazz? Ah, oh my God, right. you know, panic at the disco, right? <laughs> and it's, it's not, all you have to do is play the melody. Very easy. So here's the first, you know, four bars of Take the A Train, or eight bars. Da, 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 four. Now it's your turn. Zap, do. Here comes your turn. Right? Easy. Once you know the melody, that's all you need to know. And mm -hmm. then even if you have no jazz chops at all, just play the notes of the melody on your snare drum. Mm -hmm. If you play it well, it totally suffices, right? So people tend to think like, oh, I have to spend 20 years of my life working out of the Ted Reed book and the John Riley book and develop all this facility in order to be able to solo in jazz because you hear great jazz drummers do that. That's not true at all. And students who work with me, um, you know, when I teach jazz or when I teach privately, even if jazz, you know, for those particularly who want to learn jazz, of course, we come at it from a completely different direction, which is understanding pulse, understanding how the four limbs operate, because we live in a rock world where kick and snare are really heavy and important. And in jazz, it's just the opposite. The ride cymbal and the hi-hat are what have to be heavy and important, and the kick and snare have to be minimized. So we have to learn about the role of each of the four limbs, and I build this in a very basic way. Then we get some basic hand technique, understanding how to move from surface to surface, how to strike a surface. Because again, in the world we live in today, you really don't need to be able to do that because you got a microphone that's gonna crank it up, you know, and make you as loud or add reverb and make you echoey. So you could put, you know, a, a, a pinstripe head on your, on your tom and it's gonna eat up all the overtones, but that doesn't serve you. That doesn't help you to actually be able to get a sound out of the drum, to, to right. tune the drum, to strike the drum, these kind of things. So the, this is how I approach it. And then I approach melody and how do you phrase as a jazz drummer, you know, so that we start, we get into it by learning tunes and coming at it without thinking like you've got to spend all this time on these books. Because if you don't understand the, I, the concept of pulse and balance, then learning all the facility you're not going to sound like a jazz drummer. You're going to sound like somebody who can get their arms and legs to do stuff, but that's sure. not going to help you understand jazz. And I think that to add on to what you're saying, like I know for me, when I'm, if I was playing and I had to solo and I didn't have a melody, they just said, play a solo. I would sort of, I wouldn't know. I, the whole time I'd be thinking, I'd be like, all right, what am I going to, what can I play now? So even if you take this approach and dumb it all the way down and say, all right, I'm going to take Mary had a little lamb and play it on the drums and just right you start moving that around the kit next thing you know you can be doing all this hip stuff just off of mary had a little lamb and then you never have to think what should i play just play the melody like you said and you know taking biting off take the a train and soloing through that may be tough in the beginning because you're thinking of the melody you're thinking about what you're playing and all that stuff but you can take something you can and great point, super great point, great great point. That it does this doesn't even this doesn't just apply to jazz. This applies to soloing in general. Right. Um. But you can always simplify. So if you find that you're stumbling and trying to do too many ideas, stay with the melody, 
simplify, mm-hmm. you know, and, and if you listen to someone like Steve Gadd solo, you know, we all love Steve Gadd solos. Um, at least I do, Nick, you probably do too. I mean, I could listen to Steve Gadd all day and he doesn't really have as many chops as a lot of other drummers. I mean, he doesn't have that many chops. He just, he uses his ideas. It's always kind of the same and yet it never gets old for me. <laughs> Why? Because it is so melodic, so rooted in his conception, his ideas. And what I'm going to do, if I ever get any time, is there's been this Steve Gadd solo that's kind of making the rounds on Facebook. Um, I think you posted it, Nick, uh, or uh, you the, shared the, it or whatever. From Los the Angeles one from, Clinic one? Yeah, Los Angeles Clinic. Yeah. What year was that from, did it say? 76, maybe? Was it that early, 76? Or, or... I'm not sure, but it's, it might be a little later, but probably from the 80s. It's funny um, because he kind of looks like he's a janitor. Like the clothes that he has on, like it looks like he was like just comes out and you know. And then the next thing you know, he plays this badass solo. And <laughs> Dad is starting to yowl now. He sounds like she's being tortured. You hear that, Nick? Can you hear that? Yeah, yeah. The cat. Oh God, she she can go off. She's an old lady, and she <laughs> she's deaf, so she has no idea how loud she is, and she really works it. I mean, when she wants something, it's like she's being tortured to death. All right. So. You're like, you're laying on the couch. Evil owner. (laughs) But uh, anyway, what I want to do with this Gad solo is I want to, I want to kind of do an analysis of it. Like, and one of the most important points is, is how he builds his ideas, how he lets his sticks fall, how he gets a sound, how he uses dynamics. He, he builds the idea. And that's the thing with drummers. We're so nervous when we solo, we try to throw every idea in all right off the bat. Mm-hmm. And we don't allow it to just build. And most, you know, and it's we get sort of wrapped into hearing the, you know, the Thomas Lang solo and the Gurgle Barrelize and, and these kind of guys that are they're so taking this to such a high level that we think that that's what a drum solo has to be. But in, in, in reality, those drum solos are meant for drummers. And if you take a guy like Gad or a guy like Gene Krupa, another great soloist, those solos were meant for non-drummers or non-musicians. They, th- that's why Krupa was so popular because not only could drummers relate to him, but non-drummers, non-musicians could relate to him. So, you know, Gad is the perfect modern example of that as a soloist. Um, that's why I love what he does and that's why he is so popular. You know, he was a, a rock star in Japan in the 70s, not among drummers, among everybody. Like, people would line up to go see a show because Steve Gadd was playing on it, right. not because of the band he was playing with because right. of him. You know, he's, he's like a major superstar, much more so than in, in the U S right. You know, so it's, he, you can relate. And so what I want to do is take this solo and just kind of do a breakdown. He doesn't hit a symbol until like the fourth minute of this solo. <laughs> he's in no hurry. He's in no hurry. Right. He takes the idea and he builds it. Yeah. So anyway, blah, blah, blah. Cool. We probably should wrap. Okay. Uh, we have a couple more questions. So let's try to get these really quickly. Um, Lachlan asks, how do you deal with negative head talk and performance anxiety? Or do you have any tips to keep your mental health in check whilst in a gig drought? And I do want to say one thing that you gave me probably one of the best pieces of advice I've ever received from anybody. And you told me this years ago and you said – you can never underestimate your own playing and overestimate everyone else's playing because it's just going to totally screw you up in the head and you're going to think that you can never get there. So 
thank you for that. So if Lachlan hears that, maybe that helps a little bit. But uh, but then obviously, let's hear your take on it too. Um. Well, um, the, the negative head talk is a tough one, and I don't think it ever goes away. Um, we all, you know, I, I remember seeing Zorro, who was a big mentor of mine. You know, we worked on a book together, and, and he, you know, that book, The Big Gig, I kind of got that book for the eight years that we worked on our project together. So I got a lot of great pep talks from him. And, you know, it's, it's we tend to, I think, get overwhelmed with the big picture that we're not getting to where we want to be, or it's too overwhelming to try to learn everything, or our drumming's not good enough, or <laughs> there you go, the big gig. Um, and, you know, I, I think like a lot of it comes down to, um, I mean, luckily you've asked a couple different questions. There's negative head talk and performance anxiety. So that's what happens when you're on stage. And that's one thing. And then keeping your mental health in check while in a gig drought is kind of a different thing. One is more of a, an instant panic and the other one is more of a long-term kind of fighting depression and those sort of things, you know. Um, but what I was going to say is, you know, Zorro writes this huge book about the big gig. He's one of the most inspirational, energetic, motivated people I know in my life. And uh, one year at a PASIC, this is when the big gig came out. And so he was kind of promoting that and talking about all these issues. Uh, this, this young teenage girl raises her hand and she's like, you know, you're, you know, so famous. You've had you've done so much in your career. You seem so self-assured. Do you ever experience like you know, uh, negative head talk to use that, that word. I don't remember exactly the term she said. And, and, and this is after him talking about the big gig for like an hour and just being like, rah, rah, rah. And she said, do you ever experience like self-doubt or confusion or whatever? And he goes every day, (laughs) every day. Mm -hmm. So what we have to remember is, and we have to give ourselves some credit is that we have taken on as drummers trying to get into a great band, trying to make a living, you know, whatever level that, that, that your thing is at, um, you know, you've taken on an art. It's not like you, you're, you're learning accounting and you sit around going, man, are my accounting skills like really up to par? You know, am I really like knocking people out with my accounting skills? Is my, you know, data entry, you know, (laughs) no, I mean, those people, go to their job, they enter data for eight hours. They probably hate every minute of it, by the way. And then they, but they get their guaranteed salary and then they go home and they turn off and they watch TV. And you could have that life. Nick, you could have that life. I could have that life. Mm-hmm. It'd be a lot safer. It'd be a lot steadier. It would be a lot more regular. There'd be more security perhaps. But for me, and I know for you, Nick, and probably for most of the people on this list, certainly for Lachlan, who's a student of mine who, who I know and, and we've been working together now for a while, um, you know, we can't do that. We just can't. And we've taken a huge, bold step, huge step to like get out there and try to really go for it as an artist. And even if you're a kid in school and you want to get into this band or you want to make first chair in drumline or in the, in the, in the orchestra or the band, you know, you're, you're going for it. And so you have to give yourself some credit that, A, it's not easy to do. And there's a lot of people also trying to do that. And so, you know, we have to kind of be, like, kind to ourselves. Um, and, you know, when you're in a gig drought, uh, 
um, Nick turned me on to this guy, Gary, Gary Vaynerchuk. Is that how you say his name? Yeah, Gary Vaynerchuk. He's like this crazy motivational speaker, social media whiz kid, millionaire, hyper. He's not like any, he's not slick. He doesn't wear a suit. He doesn't get up on stage. He sits up his computer and yells at it and curses four letter words. And he's so real that that's what makes him awesome. He's just like a regular dude. And all he wants is to like for everyone else to succeed. And he's right. like, that's his little thing. So I've been listening to like, I, I like those books to get me pumped up, you know, and I read business books, by the way, um, because I think of what I do and Gary Vaynerchuk would agree with me that as soon as you say, I want to make a living as a drummer, I want to be a drummer for my career. Guess what? You're in business for yourself, whether you like it or not. So too often we focus only on the musical parts. We don't, and this is a whole other topic that we can, right. that we, we can do an entire Q and a or an entire podcast about this or, you know, but we need to think of ourselves as a brand. And one of the things that Gary said in this book I was listening to yesterday, which just resonated with me is like, you know, he's like, well, some of you might be saying, man, things are really terrible and really slow right now. I have no money to get this going and you know, whatever. And his answer is you're super lucky because you have all of that downtime to like put your brand together. Right. You know? right now, I mean, and I was talking to Nick about this. I'm kind of in a slow period. The first half of the year is super busy for me. The second half's, you know, starting to starting to really come together. But you know, like July and and August are dead months. And I, you know, believe me, I'm like, I, I got a I got a house in LA with a mortgage. I got an apartment in New York with a with a rent. Um, you know. I got to earn, man. Right. And, uh, and we've been, gotta, you know, we've been hitting it hard when you're in the yeah. downtime. So one of the things I did was, you know, Nick and I have known each other for a long time and I'm, I'm, I'm really impressed with what he's done with drummers resource. He's really made an incredible, um, kind of play, you know, community out of it and a, and a place to hang and get knowledge and get inspired. And, and we went on a coffee and it was like, Hey, let's, let's do some stuff together, you know? So out of all of this, cause we live near each other. He lives, you know, close to New York. I live in New York. And, um, it's, it's now all of a sudden after like what was panicking me before, where like, oh, I had all this downtime. Now I'm like so excited about where things are headed, the direction that things are headed. So use the downtime as a way to plan the next move. And, you know, I always say that too often musicians and sadly, especially drummers, because we're used to being side men and women, right. we're used to being the ones called for someone else's project, for someone else's career, for someone else's brand, someone else's business. Um, we, we don't, you know, um, we, we don't like think of ourselves as being in control of our own careers. We're like a boat that just sort of is buffeted around by the seas. And if we happen to land here, we get information here. If we happen to land there, we get information there. Um, and what both Nick and I have done, and Nick, amazingly, because when I first met Nick, he wasn't even thinking about Drummer's Resource, or at least yeah. like we were talking about his career and stuff. And suddenly he's got this Drummer's Resource thing. Suddenly it's like, holy cow, man, this guy is like super focused. So now, you know, he's outlined what he wants to do. And of course, he's still a drummer. He's still doing gigs and working, but like he's created this amazing online thing because he's got a lot of online skills i'm learning a lot from him he's able to do this whole webinar thing you know uh for us to interact with people out there so same for me i mean i i decided got into the passion uh of of my history thing and now i put out books and dvds and that's helped to define 
what I'm about. But every person out there, and this is something I, I learned from Zorro, you know, when I was working on the commandments book, Steve Smith put out his history of the U.S. The US uh, beat, right, That his DVD, which looked at the history of the drum set. And I was like, oh, my God, like this, you know, first of all, this is Steve Smith, and he's so much better than me. And there's no way I'll ever be able to put out anything that's going to be as good as this, you know. So why am I doing all this work? And it's all ruined. And Zora was like, no, dude. He's like, Steve Smith is nothing like you, and you're nothing like Steve Smith. And I know that sounds trite, but it, it is absolutely true. He said, when my Commandments of R&B book came out, four other books on funk drumming came out that year. Four other books. And guess what? The one of those four that is a, you know, a long-time seller that people are still buying today is mine. Why? Because it's about, it's part of my business, it's part of my hustle, it's a part of how I present myself to the world, it's part of my brand. Mm-hmm. So that gave me a lot of hope and inspiration. And funny enough, when I put out The Century Project, Steve Smith was blown away by it to this day. Now I live in New York, Steve has an apartment a few blocks from here, we're buddies. Nice. We hang all the time. He's come to my clinics, which is like knocked me out. I go see him. It's like we hang, you know. I never, when I saw Steve Smith in 1981 in Honolulu when I was 14 years old, play with Journey, never in my wildest dreams thought that he and I would be friends, okay? Right. So, but here's the point that DVD came out and I was defeated. And Zorro said, No, you're you and nobody could do what you do. Nobody could do it the way you do it. And this is what Gary Vaynerchuk said, you know. You can have a million different websites dedicated to wine, but the ones that are going to succeed are the ones that are about passion, where it's honest passion, and and it's about like you doing your thing and doing it better than anybody else because nobody can do it better than you because you have you know now does it have to be great? Yes, it has to be great. Yeah. There's no doubt about that, you know. But the fact that I could you know teach Steve Smith about stuff. And then we wrote a book together, you know, and I was the editor on the book. You know, I was the guy that took it all and put it all together and wrote all the introductions and everything, you know, and Steve wrote his part, but it was like, it was just an amazing collaborative experience. So to have written books with both Zorro and Steve, you know, who are both mentors of mine, guys that I hugely admire. Um, But the point is, don't feel like downtime is bad time. Right. And I guess we could get to the other half of Lachlan's question too, but I mean, Definitely, like, if we set our course, if we set some goals as far as what we want to do with ourselves as drummers, as musicians, as artists, long-term goals, short-term goals, and we really start formulating. This is another great example. Uh, I'm reading a book called The E-Myth right now, which is about how most businesses are started, say, you bake cakes. Well, most people who start a business are really good at baking cakes or something like that, playing the drums. So they started a business, and they go, I'm going to open a cake shop. Uh, And the business fails. And why? Because they're thinking only about, they just think if I make good enough cakes, then everyone will buy them and I'll have a successful business. But they don't understand their other aspects to being an entrepreneur and running a business. Right. The doing of that thing is just a small part of it. So, um, you know, we as musicians, drummers have to see ourselves in the bigger picture. We have to understand ourselves as a business and start to formulate, well, what's that business going to look like? We have to see the future of the business. We have to envision what the finished product or the more finished product will look like so that we can work towards that right. rather than, you know, just doing whatever's happening right now. Oh, well, 
I'm, you know, I, yes, I'm selling cakes, but now I don't know how to deal with this because now I got to do the accounting and I got to do the cleanup and I got to be there to open the shop and I got to pay the rent and, and then I got to bake cakes, right. you know, and oftentimes the business starts growing and that's when it, when it dies because right. they don't know how to transition into the bigger picture. So that's what I'm trying to do all the time and looking at guys who, whether it's Gary Vaynerchuk or it's Nick, you know, or it's Steve Smith, who's an incredible businessman or Zorro. You know, these guys, they have learned how to create their brand or Stanton. You know, go to people who are doing what you do and ask them a million questions and then yeah. copy them very politely in your own way. And what you put out will look nothing like what they put out. Right. If, if it's truly, you know, about your passion, what you've spent all your time focusing on. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, the knowledge is – I was just talking to my wife the other night. Like, it's amazing how much knowledge is out there about whatever you want to study. There is books upon books upon books and other people who have done sort of, you know, the same thing. And and to touch on your on the business side of things, you know, you and I are professional drummers, but how much time do we spend literally behind the kit versus all the other ancillary things that are going on, you know, and it's probably part. <laughs> it's ninety percent professional and ten percent drummer. Yeah. You know, and how do you get time to even practice that much anymore? Or, you know, well, you're, you're a good practicer. I'm not, but I, I just try to book as many gigs as I can. And that helps me keep my chops up. Yep. <laughs> That's the working man's way to, you know, to, to, uh, to keep getting better and, and then staying focused. But I know I do practice. And what's great is through my teaching, I'm also able to really continue to define and hone what I'm teaching. Right. You know, yeah. the more fundamental things that, that I teach about. Absolutely. And one other thing for Lachlan, uh, somebody told me a long time ago, Johnny DeFrancesco, who's a good brother of the great Joey DeFrancesco, said, if you don't have gigs, then just create them. So put a band together and you anybody you want to play with, man, for the most part, unless it's like, you know, Lenny Kravitz or something, you can call them for a gig. And Lenny would probably play the gig, too, if you paid him enough. But but anybody that you want to play with, just Put put the gig together and hire them for the gig. Say, hey man, I need a guitar player, I need a bass player, I need a keyboard player. We're going to play these tunes. You're the band leader, and you book all the gigs, and you'll never be out of work if you hustle on your product and put it out and and handle your business. Then you'll never you'll never have to worry about the phone not ringing anymore. That I can guarantee you. When I when I got out of music school, um, I I got a house. I was in Los Angeles, and I got a house out in the valley, and it was really easy at that time to find a lot of houses that had been like owned by musicians or rented by musicians. So I found a soundproof garage that was all kind of basically done. It wasn't anything fancy, but I could practice there. And if I wasn't working, which I wasn't a lot in my first couple of years out of music school, it was the hardest years of my life. You know, I was really struggling to just, I was studying with Freddie Gruber. I started studying with Freddie and I was just learning, but it was like really tough, man. There was nobody hiring me. My phone wasn't ringing. Um, you know, or, or it was a lot of not paying gigs, mm-hmm. but I, um, I went to, um, I, I would just organize sessions in my, um, in my garage. I just would have a session every few days. And that was part of the reason why I got that space. And I would just jam with all kinds of people. And sometimes it worked out. We did amazing kind of things and had growth. Sometimes it didn't, but I had band rehearsals there, bands I was working with, um, and I just made it my business 
I just, you know, I said, look, I don't care. I, I cannot do anything else. So I'm not going to do anything else. I, I had some crappy day jobs. They were all day jobs that I could leave at a moment's notice that didn't matter that as soon as something happened musically. And I just, I was all in, you know, I went all in and you kind of have to do that, especially if you want to make a living. I don't know how many people out here want to make a living at it, but it just, you know, it's not an easy world. It's never been an easy world. Right. Um, but uh, it, it's exactly what Nick said. Like, make it happen. Create your own. Yep. You know, that's definitely the moral of it. That you can you can do it your yourself. So don't let it leave it up to uh, to anybody else to do it. So uh, I think that's a good place to wrap up, man. We're you know we're about an hour and, and twenty minutes in. Thank you to everyone for being a part of this. If you want to learn more about what Daniel does, check him out at DanielGlass.com. If you want to learn more about what I do, check me out at DrummersResource.com. Also, be sure to keep an eye out for Daniel's new podcast, which is to be coming out through the Drummers Resource Podcast Network. That sounds so fancy, but um, but it's going to be a great it's going to be a great podcast. And thank you to everyone for for being a part of this. And if I can make one more little little uh, advertisement, um, yeah. uh, in addition to teaching drum lessons, I also do career consultations. Um, and I got a lot of, like for Omar, for example. Yeah. I'm trying to teach him how to not jump, how up, to on not desk. jump on a desk. Um, but I do, I do career consultations. And, you know, a lot of people come to me with some of these questions like, you know, how do I kick my career into, the, into high gear? How do I get into social media stuff? I've just been DIY basically for so many years between bands I've been in. Royal Crown Review was a very DIY band. I mean, we were signed to a major label, but we were always in our own little world. So we had to create stuff ourselves. Um, and, uh, so that's, that's something that I do in addition to the lessons and, and that you can go to the website. There's a lessons and consultations page. Cool. So anyway, and I want to just say thanks to Nick, um, for, for facilitating this yeah, man. and for inviting me to do this. And it's, it's just been great and it's been a lot of fun. And thank you to those of you who, who came and, uh, hung out with us. Cool. Thank you guys very much again. And like I said, check out drummersresource.com, check out danielglass.com and we'll see you soon. Yes. See ya. Ciao. So there you have it, Mr. Daniel Glass with that live Q&A. And for those of you interested in learning more about Daniel, Daniel is actually the first person I ever interviewed for the podcast. So he is Drummer's Resource Podcast Session 1. So if you want to check that out, head over to drummersresource.com. And if you want all the notes from this show, you can visit drummersresource.com forward slash session 116. As I mentioned, if you're digging the podcast, do me a favor, leave me a rating or a review on iTunes. I would really appreciate it. I'm on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash drummers resource. I'm on Instagram at drummers resource. I'm on Twitter at drummers R source. And until the next podcast, keep drumming. Thanks so much for listening. And I'll be talking to you soon. Peace. Peace.